Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here are your hosts, John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 53 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Okay, so this is our first episode to be appearing on Wired.com, so we're really excited about that. And we'd really like to thank Kevin Polson and Lewis Wallace of Wired.com for helping us get this set up. And a big hello to all our new listeners here at Wired.com. Check back here at Wired.com every two weeks for new episodes. Each hour-long show features an interview with a leading figure in the world of science and science fiction, followed by a discussion of science fiction books, movies, games, and more. And we're your hosts, so I'm David Barkertley. I'm a fantasy and science fiction author, and I've published short stories in a few dozen books and magazines. And I'm John Joseph Adams. I'm the editor and publisher of Lightspeed Magazine, and I've also edited about a dozen anthologies. To learn more about us, visit our website at geeksguideshow.com, where you can check out all our previous episodes featuring guests such as George R.R. R. Martin, Richard Dawkins, and Simon Pegg. And if you enjoy today's show and want it to continue, please visit our post at wired.com and add a comment. And you can find that by going to our website at geeksguideshow.com and clicking on the link for episode 53. And we're very pleased to introduce today's guest, William Gibson. He's the author of the novel Neuromancer, which defined the cyberpunk subgenre in science fiction. His most recent book, Distrust That Particular Flavor, collects his best nonfiction pieces from the past 20 years. All right, so let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with William Gibson. Welcome to the show. Well, glad to be here. Okay, so your new book is called Distrust That Particular Flavor. What does that title refer to? It's a phrase from one of the from the piece in the collection called Time Machine Cuba, and the the particular flavor is that futurists in immediate apocalyptic mode, like the world is ending right now, so pay attention to me. And they, it, it comes after I quote H.G. Wells doing, you know, hitting that particular note in a, in a very particularly shrill way. It's akin to the, the after us, the deluge rant, which is something I, I watch for in other science fiction writers because it's usually a bad sign. Futurists get to a certain age, and, and as one does, they actually suddenly recognize their, their own mortality, and then often decide that what's going on is that everything is, is just like totally screwed and shabby now, whereas when they were younger, everything was better. It's an ancient, somewhat universal human attitude, and so and often they give it full voice, but it's been being given voice for thousands and thousands of years. You can go back and see the ancient Greeks doing it. You know, all all that is good is gone. You know, these young people are incapable of making art or blue jeans or whatever. It's just an ancient thing. And, and it's so ancient that I'm inclined to think it's never actually true. And I've always been deeply, deeply distrustful of 
anybody's golden age, that one in which we, we no longer live in. Uh, so your new book uh, opens with a photo of a young William Gibson. Uh, when was that photo taken and why did you decide to include it in the book? I'm not sure when it was taken. It would have been very late 80s or very early, early 90s. And I liked it because it, it was emblematic of the fact that beautiful women actually can marry guys who look like Dr. Seuss characters. <laughs> Okay, so uh, many of the pieces in the book were written for Wired magazine. Uh, how did you first get started writing for Wired, and uh, how did you end up writing so many articles for them? I had met Kevin Kelly via the Global Business Network, and then Kevin and whoever else started started Wired back when it you know it was a it was a, a crazy indie San Francisco thing. So, although I don't actually remember, I'm sure Kevin called me up and started suggesting gigs, and and it was it was easier and more fun to do that sort of thing with Wired than anybody else because they weren't, you know, they weren't the product of a major publishing company. They didn't have a huge ancient culture of of magazine publishing in position to make things make things difficult. So so they would suggest, you know, genuinely crazy and interesting things to to highly uh, highly unlikely people. I think Bruce Sterling may have gotten in there first and, and that were that could have been a factor too. So obviously the media world has changed a lot since you first started writing. If you were just getting started today, do you think you'd get into podcasting, YouTube, or webcomics, anything like that? I think about that when young people ask me what they should do to get started. Because, you know, when they ask me that, I realize that I don't know. Because I, I'm not really... You know, I'm not really familiar with the venues. When I began, I knew what was more or less what was possible with what was with what was available then. And today, I, today I don't really know. It's one of the reasons that writers who've been established for a while actually can't give younger writers very much, very much advice, particularly today, because you know that stuff didn't really change very much for for a long time. I saw advice to young writers when when I was in my early teens in the early sixties that was perfectly valid and useful advice when I began again writing in the late seventies. Because things hadn't changed that much, but now things have indeed changed quite a lot. Uh, so speaking of your early work, actually, um, did you uh, did you basically achieve success right away when you were first sending out your short stories, or did you uh, did you get like you know did you accumulate a bunch of rejections like uh, most writers do before you you know you made your uh, first couple sales? The first story I wrote was written in a class on science fiction criticism 
and then people, you know, twisted my arm and forced me to submit it somewhere, and I submitted it to the most obscure market I could find, and it was it was immediately purchased. That story was fragments of a hologram rose in in a little magazine called Unearth, which only published people's first stories. So the next time I wrote a short story, I sent it to that market, and they rejected it. It was some early version of whatever became Johnny Mnemonic, and it discouraged me. I was easily discouraged. The rejection discouraged me, and I didn't go back to I didn't I didn't go back to writing science fiction stories for a while. Then a friend of mine who was much more aggressive and ambitious than I was had gone to New York and was hustling publication in Omni and told me, you know, they were paying good money and that I was a fool not to get not to get in there. So he somehow talked me into submitting to them and I, I think it created, you know, the, the idea of submitting to a bigger market created some pressure that caused me to push a little harder in the rewrite than I would have done submitting to a less big deal market. And then they bought it. But I went from, you know, a market that paid like $27 for a story to a market that paid like $2,700 for a story of the the same length. So, you know, I did everything I could to stay in that market. And that was Omni. You know, if you wrote for any of those with the digest-sized magazines, you know, they'd give you, like, you were lucky if if you got a couple of hundred bucks. Like, they really didn't, they really didn't pay. But with Omni, you got like $2,700. And that was actually enough money to make a difference. Like I bought my wife a television set and I bought myself a plane ticket to New York so I could go and meet the people who sent me that check, hmm. which actually proved to be a very good, uh, a very good investment. After that, I don't think I was, I, I don't think my short fiction was, was ever rejected. Omni paid so much more than the other science fiction markets that I never went anywhere else. And as soon as I got into the the novel market, I pretty much quit writing quit writing short fiction. So, you know, I listened to your Intelligence Squared interview with Cory Doctorow, and from what he said, it sounds like a lot of people in Singapore sort of have a complex about you referring to their country as, quote, Disneyland with the death penalty. Uh, is that the most worked up that people have gotten over something you've written, or are there other examples? No, that's the only, you know, that's the only thing I've ever written that's caused a, a, a national government to make a formal complaint <laughs> to the to the publisher <laughs> and then ban the magazine for a while. So the documentary No Maps for These Territories features conversations with you as you sit in the back of this moving car with weird psychedelic effects out the windows. I was just wondering whose idea was it to do the film like that, and what did you think of the result? That was Mark Neal's idea. Mark Mark Neal was the 
the film the filmmaker there and Mark Mark Neal and I are friends and otherwise you know, otherwise I wouldn't have done it because it involved being gaffer taped to the back of the car. And since the the uh psychedelic shut out the window was put in later I didn't I didn't even get to enjoy that. I've only you know, that said, I've only seen it once. I saw it in a theater and I felt I needed to see it all and to sign sign off on it. But since I seriously can't stand the sound of my own recorded voice, it it's not something I'll be likely likely to see through again. why were you gaffer taped to the car? Well, I once I got into the once I got into the back seat, they had to tape a lot of stuff together. Like the car was rigged with eight or ten pencil cameras, and wires all over the place. It was it was extremely difficult to get me in and out of the vehicle once we got into recording mode. So it was a little awkward that way. It was as though I was taped into the back of the okay. So one of the pieces in the book talks about your hobby of collecting antique watches on eBay. Could you tell us about that? The, the watch thing was about, I eventually figured out it was really about pursuing a, a totally unnecessary and gratuitous body of really, really esoteric knowledge. It wasn't about accumulating a bunch of objects it was it was about getting into something like utterly witheringly obscure but getting into it at the level of like an extreme sport i met hmm. some extraordinarily weird weird people i met guys who could say well i got this really rare watch and it's missing this little piece do you know where I might find one? And the guy would kind of stare into space for a while, and then he'd say, this address in Cairo. And he'd say, it's in the back room. The guy's name is Ali. But he won't sell. But he would trade it to you if you had this or this. And it wasn't bullshit. It was like, it was kind of like a magical universe. It was it was very interesting, but once I'd gotten that far, I got to a certain point, and it was just like nowhere else to go with it. So you know, it's like the journey was complete. Maybe one day I'll use that stuff in fiction or or something. Okay, and uh, so uh, you 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 wrote a script for uh, Alien Three that was never filmed. Uh, what did you think of the direction the series took? And um, are you planning to see uh, Prometheus when it comes out? Oh gee, I, I might. You know, I've never actually seen Alien Three. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen the first two, but I'm always curious what Ridley Scott does. He's, he's an interesting. He's a, I'm more interested in Ridley than I am in the alien franchise okay so when i first started going to science fiction conventions i, I heard this story this funny story involving you and i've never been sure whether it was true or if it happened the way i heard it and i was just wondering if i could if you if you if you knew what i'm talking about it was this story where you go to a hotel to check in and you say hi i'm mr gibson and 
everyone acts all shocked at the hotel? It was a Beverly Hills hotel, and I don't know. Somebody had checked me in. I was doing something film-related. Film it was when I, I had started doing some contract screenplay work after after that Alien 3 script. And so I got there, and they were like, you know, I couldn't figure out what was going on. They were, the desk people just looked gobsmacked and really unhappy. <laughs> and so the bellman takes me up to this very fancy suite, and in the suite there's a table like lavishly arrayed with very expensive wines and liquors and, and floral displays. The big thing that says, says, the Beverly Hills Hotel welcomes Mel Gibson. And, <laughs> and so I looked at the bellman and I said, oh, you you know, I'm not him. You can take this stuff away. <laughs> and he said, "No." He said, "You could." He said, "You get to, you get to keep it." And I said, "What? What am I supposed to do with it?" And he said, "Call some friends, have a party." <laughs> <laughs> okay. And finally, just have you written any other recent articles or blog posts or anything that people should check out? No. All I do, all I do is tweet. So. They can go go to at Great Dismal on Twitter, and there I will be. You know, you had a, a recent short story up here um, in an anthology called Darwin's Bastards. Uh, yeah, just... that's true. That's true, and I, I'm I you know I wish somebody would reprint that <laughs> somewhere <laughs> somewhere where it, where it would be seen because I quite I quite liked it, and I hadn't done a short story for like ages, you know, for 20 years or something. So that, that was, that was the, you know, that was the first one. And it was quite unlike any, any short stories I had done, done previously, but it's, you know, it's a Canadian, it's a Canadian anthology. It's actually a very good anthology. There's, there's a lot of really interesting fiction in that thing, but it, it just, doesn't seem to have had had much legs. Well, what was the story about? Oh, it's, it's called uh, Dougal Discarnate. It's about a guy who takes acid in Vancouver hippiedom in in the late '60s or the early '70s, and has a really tremendous rush from doing it and leaves his body, and then he can't get back into his body and his body's taken to hospital and it eventually recovers and becomes a stockbroker or a real estate agent or something and, and he's just left disincorporated like this bodiless spirit haunting this particular neighborhood in Vancouver which for mysterious reasons he discovers he can't leave like this sort of this sort of invisible barriers and in the story I dis I myself am a character in the story, and I discover this disincorporated guy and become friends with him and take him to the movies and stuff. He, he becomes my film film going buddy. But the rest of the story, the rest of the story is about how he gets rescued from this seemingly hopeless state and actually winds up married, sort of. Uh, very very happy and li living in uh, Okinawa. That's all a spoiler. 
<laughs> you, can, you can use it anyway. You know, maybe it'll encourage somebody to buy Darwin's bastard. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, William Gibson, thanks so much for joining us on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Okay. Well, thank you. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to William Gibson for joining us on the show. And for our discussion today, we'll be talking about the cyberpunk subgenre. And we're joined by a special guest geek, Seth Dickinson. His story, The Immaculate Conception of Private Ritter, won the 2011 Dell Magazines Award for Undergraduate Science Fiction, and his first published story, The Traitor Baru Cormorant, Her Field General, and Their Wounds, just appeared in the online fantasy magazine Beneath Ceaseless Skies. So, Seth, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. All right, and so as I said, we're going to be talking about cyberpunk. So cyberpunk is basically a, a literary movement in science fiction uh, that got started in the 1980s. Uh, when people sort of started realizing that probably a sort of Star Trek exploring the galaxy uh, future wasn't uh, in the cards, you know, anytime soon, and that the future was probably going to involve more information technology and virtual reality and evil corporations and, and a lot of drugs. So the sort of defining uh, books are generally thought to be Neuro the novel Neuromancer by our guest, William Gibson, and the Mirror Shades anthology, uh, edited by Bruce Sterling. William Gibson had gone up to Canada with uh, thoughts of kind of dodging the draft for the Vietnam War and kind of gotten fallen in with the uh, sort of expatriate community there. And uh, I, I was reading that he, he told the, the draft board when they interviewed him that his uh, in intention was to sample every mind-altering substance known to man. And so when he uh, started writing science fiction, he took a lot of that kind of like low-life sort of counterculture, uh, drug culture sort of stuff and, and applied it to science fiction, along with some really inter interesting speculations about computers and information technology. And that kind of uh, sort of formed the basis of cyberpunk. But William Gibson... Uh, was not the I I got the feeling he didn't have the sort of personality to really take cyberpunk and push it, but fortunately he uh, sort of met up with this guy Bruce Sterling who had a much more sort of uh, sort of proselytizing uh, personality. Uh, I heard Nancy Kress say one time that when she first started going to science fiction conventions that Bruce Sterling would just be like standing on tables, sort of preaching the gospel of of cyberpunk. And actually, the the term cyberpunk came from the title of a Bruce Bethke story. Uh, called Cyberpunk, published in 1983. And it was Gardner Dozois, the longtime editor of Asimov's magazine, who sort of took that word and applied it to the nascent subgenre of Bruce Sterling and, and William Gibson and, and all those guys. Okay, so John, I mean, do you want to talk about just how did you first uh, kind of hear about Cyberpunk? What was sort of your introduction to it, stuff like that? Uh, I don't remember uh, when I first heard the term. Uh, uh, I, I, it was probably uh, through Bruce Sterling. Uh, when I was in college, I took a science fiction literature course, and, and one of our textbooks was actually Bruce Sterling's collection, A Good Old Fashioned Future. Um, and I'm sure we must have bandied about the term cyberpunk during our discussions of that, because um, uh, at least several of the stories in the book are um, are cyberpunk. Um, and, and as you were saying, Bruce is uh, one of the sort of founders of the movement um, and the, the, you know, the biggest sort of proponent of it early on. 
So, uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I definitely got started with Bruce Sterling. Um, at some point, I became aware of uh, Neuromancer and, and, and William Gibson. And, 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 and actually, when you were mentioning Neuromancer, I, was, I would say that also Burning Chrome, um, Gibson's collection, um, is, is also sort of a... Burning Chrome is also uh, sort of a very important text in, in, in cyberpunk because uh, uh, many of the stories there are cyberpunk. And, um, you know, like that includes uh, the story Burning Chrome, the story Johnny Mnemonic, uh, you know, which are sort of influential stories, uh, which I think um, uh, all predated uh, Neuromancer. So um, so they sort of helped establish the, the ground rules of what cyberpunk would become. And, you know, those uh, both appeared in, in Omni magazine and, uh, uh, you know, Omni was a big you know, reason uh, uh, that cyberpunk became as big as it did, I think, because it was a very big, um, you know, because it had a very large audience and, and, you know, it was, it was sort of the top magazine around at its time. It was paying the best rates for fiction as Gibson was saying in, in the interview. And, um, and also it had the largest audience. So, and, and so, and so Ellen Datlow was actually the editor or the fiction editor at the time. And so she's largely responsible as well for uh, developing cyberpunk into what it became just because she published, um, you know, Gibson and, and, and other writers like that. Um, uh, as it was uh, sort of getting started. And I, I really sort of get the feeling that it, it was very controversial uh, and that a lot of people just sort of didn't get it or, or, or weren't into it. Uh, I think you would include among, in among this my parents. You know, I mean, my hmm. parents are sort of old science fiction fans, you know, old-time science, golden age science fiction fans. And so a lot of my reading was stuff that they recommended or stuff that they liked. And so I, I didn't read a lot of cyberpunk growing up because, uh, you know, they just weren't into it. And I think that that was fairly common, uh, that they, they actually, I think sort of the science fiction kind of jumped the shark for them around stranger in a strange land, the new wave and, uh, cyberpunk were sort of, uh, going, going away from science fiction as kind of, you know, uh, humanistic and scientific and adventure and, and more into the style and sex, drugs and rock and roll and stuff like that. Um, so obviously I came to this many years later after cyberpunk was over. Um, but I grew up the same way, reading a lot of Asimov, Clark, David Brin, um, sort of space opera, hard SF. Um, and the common theme with these was always that, you know, the heroes tended to work for the government or the military and, they went out there and used science to solve problems and explore things. And uh, when I went to Alpha, which is where I met DBK, I also met my partner, Jillian. And she was a big cyberpunk fan. She read a lot of Gibson, Neil Stevenson, Sterling. So when she introduced me to cyberpunk, I, I thought of myself as politically liberal, I think. But uh, I was just, I was too conservative for it. Cyberpunk bothered <laughs> um, because as sort of this naive techno-optimist, I just hated the idea that you could put all this high technology out there and develop all this stuff, and you would still have these gritty, grimy, ugly settings with these terrible people committing crime and, you know, doing drugs. And I think in my head I'd connected the future in science fiction with this sort of sterile, a little bit sexless, a little bit uh, confined Star Trek ideal. And cyberpunk was really disruptive to that. It was. It made me confront some realities about the way technology changes society that I hadn't really thought about before. I think there's that, but I mean, I I sort of had a resistance to to getting into cyberpunk, and I love dark stuff like that. I mean, it, I don't think it was that for me so much as the the style. Like, 
it's not so much an issue now, but particularly when I was a teenager, I really felt that science fiction was sort of losing its relevance in popular culture. This is written science fiction by just turning into something that was incomprehensible to people who weren't already invested in it. And cyberpunk kind of seemed like the, uh, you know, the embodiment of that, that, you know, you would start reading a cyberpunk story and it was just like made up words as far as the eye could see, you know, like I'm, I was fizzing in my spaz jammer and the forks <laughs> were on my six and, and, you know, and I, my, my just natural reaction to that is just like, I don't care enough to, you know, I don't, I don't want to read a story with 20 made up words in the first paragraph. Yeah. I, I think there was that cyberpunk ideal of the, the crammed prose and that sort of hallucinogenic route. And I guess it is compared to sort of adventure science fiction or something like uh, Tunnel in the Sky. It's very sort of alienating. Is that how you felt? Yeah, well, yeah, not even so much alienating as sort of um, affected, you know, sort of like trying mm. too hard to be cool. That's interesting. Um, I was just thinking I first read Neuromancer in an airport jet lagged. And I think it was the perfect place to hmm. read that book because mm. it's so much about this sort of sheen of technological disconnection and in the book case you know he's constantly hung over and he's got this weird his what is it his his nerves have been burned out or something um and the book is really about like being in strange places with bad coffee and it was a good airport book i wonder if i'd read it at home if i would have had the same reaction hmm. to it well, I mean, so why don't we talk about maybe some of our favorite uh, cyberpunk books? So, Seth, I mean, is you read Neuromancer? Like, what are some of the other uh, ones you've read? So, I'm actually going to pick a pretty recent book, which was Richard Morgan's Altered Carbon. I would say that is definitely a cyberpunk book, even though it came many years after cyberpunk. It has the sort of detective conventions. It has this focus on information technology and street life and their interface. I really liked it. Um, it's incredibly violent, really brutal, sort of this packed, overdone prose, uh, a lot of sex, a lot of drugs. The main character is sort of this, um, he's sort of a blend of the ninja archetypes and the street drifter who can just sort of surf the culture. See, John, you were actually saying you weren't sure that that qualified as cyberpunk, right? What, why is that? Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know. I mean, I guess it, it you know, it depends on the definition. I mean, you know, it's certainly, it's certainly a, a kind of future noir. I mean, it feel, you know, it feels very inspired by Blade Runner. Basically, it's like, well, uh, is Blade Runner also cyberpunk then? I mean, you know, it's like, it, it, I mean, I don't even think there's internet in Altered Carbon, right? And it's, it just seems like cyberpunk kind of has to have some sort of internet or some sort of virtual world, you know, as some sort of central part of the story. I mean, I don't have a problem per se saying that Altered Carbon is cyberpunk, but it, I mean, uh, I, I would probably say more like it's heavily influenced by it um, in terms of its its feel, uh, but is not actually part of it itself. Well, I think that's an interesting issue, though. I mean, does it need the net to be cyberpunk? I mean, you say, Bla I mean, Blade Runner seems to me like almost the quintessential cyberpunk movie, mm -hmm. um, but that has no internet in it. Yeah, I think it might be a case of like being proto you know, like sort of proto uh, cyberpunk rather than being cyberpunk itself. But, um, and I mean, there's other proto uh, examples like, uh, like, I mean, I've often seen Alfred Bester cited as a sort of example of a proto cyberpunk uh, writing. Um, you know, you can look at stuff that he wrote and you can see the influence, but, you know, it's certainly not cyberpunk in of itself. Well, I mean, so John, like, what are some of your favorite, uh, favorite examples of cyberpunk? Uh, well, uh, Snow Crash by Neil Stevenson comes to mind. Um, 
you know, there's also Hardwired by Walter John Williams. Um, and, you know, like, uh, I like a lot of the stories in Burning Chrome. Uh, as far as individual stories, like uh, Maniki Nico by Bruce Sterling is one of my favorites. Um, actually, you know, that was one of the stories that I actually read in, in, in my literature course in college. And uh, um, I recently reprinted it in Lightspeed. Um, so it's one that I, I kind of felt like it held up pretty well as cyberpunk, um, you know, even as a contemporary story. Yeah, I mean, those those are the examples that come to mind. I mean, also, there's the the anime um, Ghost in the Shell. Um which is, uh, you know, I mean, I'm not like a huge anime fan, but I mean, that, that one's, that one's quite good. And, uh, you know, I mean, there's actually a lot of anime that, that deals with cyberpunk. Yeah. I mean, I, th I thought it was, in I'm not, I'm not a super anime person either, but, you know, John and I were talking about this topic before the show and, and John was saying, you know, well, how about this anime is cyberpunk and, and this one is, and this one is, and I was like, are, are basically all science fiction anime movies cyberpunk? I don't know much about anime, but I have the same sense, and I think I've read somewhere uh, both that cyberpunk is a huge influence on anime, and also that um, maybe it was Gibson visited Japan. Maybe it wasn't Gibson. Someone visited no, Japan. No, it was. I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah and his Japanese friend showed him the skyline and said, it's Blade Runner. This is hmm. the Blade Runner city. So I think, well, I'm not obviously Japanese, but I feel like it is a powerful part of the culture there. All right. So, I mean, you know, one story I wanted to mention is, is probably the cyberpunk, the sort of quintessential cyberpunk story that sticks in my mind the most is, is called Dog Walker by Orson Scott Card. And the, the premise here is that there's the, this, this guy and uh, he's hired to figure out the password of this government agent. And uh, so he sort of researches the guy and... <laughs> you know, finds out everything he can about them, about him, and, and is sort of able to, to guess what his password is. And uh, just when I read that, I just thought that was such a, such an interesting idea. Like, could you actually research somebody and get inside their head so well to, to be able to guess what their computer password is? I think that is a, a very good pick for the quintessential cyberpunk story, because it doesn't require any real understanding not to say the author didn't understand it, but it doesn't require anything about the technology for the plot to work. It's about how people interact with that technology. And uh, the I think even today, most big security breaches are accomplished through social engineering, figuring out how the people think and or tricking the passwords out of them, things like that. But yeah, it, uh, like, like you said, um, cyberpunk can seem very forced or affected sometimes. And I think Orson Scott Card wrote that story because he really, really didn't like cyberpunk. He didn't like the slang. I don't think he liked the politics. And he wanted to see if he could write a cyberpunk story that had those traits that was still cyberpunk, but that he could enjoy. But he, I've, I've heard him say, too, that uh, that he thought that William Gibson was really onto something, where, where William, Gib, William Gibson said, look, the consensus science fiction future of flying cars and galactic empires and stuff, that's not going to happen here's something that might happen instead and offered his, you know, future of evil corporations and microchips in the brains and, you know, stuff like that. And in Orson Scott Card's opinion, what people should have taken from that was to say, oh yeah, the, the consensus science fiction future isn't going to happen. Here's my idea of what the future will be. And instead of doing that, they said, yeah, that's not what the future is going to be like. Here's more of William Gibson's idea of what the future is going to be like. You know, just sort of recycling William Gibson's ideas rather than coming up with their own. Just, I want to talk a little bit about cyberpunk as a, as a movement, because 
it seems to me that it really was, you know, a movement that there were sort of a group of people who were actively promoting it and, you know, writing in favor of it and stuff in a way that's different from, you know, say the new wave uh, of the 60s and 70s, where people sort of made it into a movement, but the people, you know, the, the participants themselves never really had that sort of idea. And, and I think that it's important with cyberpunk because I think it sort of formed this template for subsequent writers who all think, what's the way to get known writing science fiction books? Oh, well, look at cyberpunk. Those got really popular. We should do the same thing. We should, you know, have a bunch of us get together and write this, write the particular kind of thing and write manifestos about it. And, and also, I mean, every, it's, it's, it's like this sort of joke now that every movement in science fiction has to be something punk, you know, like, hmm. I mean, steampunk would be the most obvious example. And, but I mean, just in the time that I've been writing, there have been a bunch, I mean, there was like, and, and they get increasingly jokey, uh, too, but I mean, there was one yeah. called ribofunk. I think it's been rechristened, mm -hmm. uh, biopunk, but you know, sort of genetic engineering mm -hmm. kind of stuff. Uh, I mean, when we had Kat Valenti on, you know, she had her kind of jokingly named myth punk that she, you know, that she was mm -hmm. doing. And, and just, you could see like when that was this, actually the second episode that we had up on IO9 was, and they, they named it, uh, like Kat Valenti is a myth punk in episode 23 of Geeks Guide to the Galaxy. And people just went crazy, you know, <laughs> shut up with the punk names for subgenres. Stop doing it. You know, these things often don't have anything to do with punk <laughs> at all. Um, I mean, cyberpunk obviously did. Steampunk doesn't really much. Um, I mean, because given that it's typically kind of Victorian, um, not much punk going on there. You know, and like, so myth punk, like, I think, I mean, a lot of these things, it's like, it just makes it, it makes it like sort of a, a quick shorthand way to, to make something seem cool. Um, and I mean, sure, I, I'm sure uh, anybody who's actually part of the actual punk movement and stuff would, would find that um, repugnant. But um, I don't know. I, I, I don't have a problem with it per se. I mean, yeah, sure. It's uh, probably overdone a bit. But um, as far as the, the them getting uh, progressively more jokey, I, I actually uh, I had the idea to. Uh, uh, to create a, a genre called bee punk, which is, uh, you know, like steampunk, but instead of powered by steam, everything's powered by bees, you know, because like, uh, cause I read this thing, uh, or I, I stumbled across this fact that, that Cleopatra had like a, a bee powered vibrator. Like it was like a, a hollowed up gourd. And then inside of it, they put a bunch of bees and then they sealed it up and then they would shake it up and then the bees would buzz around and then she would use it as a, a vibrator. Um, and so I was like, oh, well, what else could we fill with bees? And like, you know, can we can we power technology with bees? Let's, uh, you know, and uh, I had I had grand plans. I mean, not really. I just I just thought it would be funny. It'd be funny. When it comes to cyberpunk, I like the cyber stuff a lot more than I like the punk stuff. You know, I love virtual reality and uh, you know, all stuff, you know, artificial intelligence is dwelling in cybernetic spaces and all sorts of stuff like that. I'm not so big on the motorcycles and sunglasses and, you know, drug addicts and stuff. So I don't know. I, I wonder what, what might science fiction have looked like, you know, if we had moved into the cyber without having the, the punk stuff kind mm -hmm. of along for the ride. Yeah. Like if it was just like cyberspace fiction instead of cyberpunk, mm -hmm. right? I mean, I, I understand what you're saying. Like, I mean, that's probably what the aspect of it that I'm more interested in as well. But, but I actually do really like the idea of melding those two things. And because I like the idea of 
this like technically te te technologically dominated future uh but then also showing showing it from the point of view of like the sort of uh sort of dirty uh you know <laughs> dirty unwashed masses uh you know sort of sort of showing you how how those people interact with it um instead of just the people on, on top uh you know the um, you know, people who develop the technology or, or the, or the, you know, people who can afford all the best technology and stuff. It's like, I think, I think it's interesting to see what the sort of low end, uh, of society, how they deal with it and interact with it. Um, and I mean, I find, I think that's one of the cool things about it. I think inevitably cyberpunk had to deal with the, the punk elements. And I think the reason for that is because of the whole issue of the value and control of digital information. And with SOPA recently, there's been this sort of conflict between, you know, the old school, physical media who want to be able to bring the same paradigms over to the internet. And then people like, like Cory Doctorow, who writes um, this sort of didactic fiction about the value of freedom of information. And I think that conflict inevitably returns to the punk element of cyberpunk. I'm not sure you could just do cyber adventures um, and like rescue the cyber princess. I'm not <laughs> sure that would work as well. Well, I mean, that just makes me kind of think about, you know, this this quote I heard from William Gibson, where he said, you know, when he was writing Neuromancer, that he was sort of thinking about what cyberspace was going to be like, and that he was sort of aware at some level that it was probably just going to be a place where you did online banking and stuff like that, but that he just couldn't resist the temptation to make it a sort of adventure playground for super hackers taking down evil corporations and stuff like that, because that just makes a better story, you know? Mm -hmm. And when people, I mean sort of missing the internet revolution is sort of one of the big things that people uh, level against science fiction writers that, you know, that science fiction writers were all obsessed with robots and rocket ships and, and sort of missed the boat to a, a, a big extent, to a large extent on, on the internet. And I, th I think that that's, you know, legitimate on one level, but on the other level, I mean, how, you know, who would have wanted to read a story about, shopping on amazon.com in the 1980s you know what i mean i mean it's just not that exciting um and so i mean i think it's just an interesting issue like w that there's this tension between science fiction as extrapolation and science fiction as narrative and does our desire to tell an exciting story undermine our prediction you know the accuracy of our predictions yeah i mean the 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 act of storytelling is always going to uh undermine that to some extent um and i think uh you know, the stories that tend to sort of carve out a place in history tend to be the ones that, that did really uh, happen to, to strike that right chord or, 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 you know, make that, that cool prediction like early on. Um, I mean, you know, like one of the things like, uh, you know, we always talk about with Ender's Game is, uh, is, is like how, like how, how the, the, the whole messaging system and everything uh, that Ender has at the battle school is, is just like, you know, like, or, and, uh, and uh and the whole thing with um the message boards with uh Valentine and Peter it's like you know that's the internet man and it's like wow it 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 didn't like blow my mind when i read it when you know uh before the internet but then like looking back at it it's like wow that's that's actually pretty impressive but again i mean ender's game presents the internet as like a place where you become yeah. like a, the ruler of earth you know rather than the place <laughs> where you do your yeah, online yeah. banking you know it's right right well, you do both. You rule Earth and you do your online banking. I mean, people who rule Earth, they need to do online banking too. I think obviously, since you need to, you need to sell the book in the end, you need people to read it. And people do want to read entertainment. Not to say that it's impossible to do anything of predictive or literary merit in science fiction. But I do think science fiction writers will tend to 
err on the side of entertainment. I think Gibson made the right choice there in not just writing about online banking. I think he could have done an interesting story about the everyday simple uses of the internet if it were like a crime story or a heist story or something like that. And today that's what the internet, the exciting bits of the internet are. You have these bot rings, you have um, identity theft, things like that. There's certainly a lot of cyber crime. Um, well, I mean, I guess, I mean, speaking of predicting the future, I mean, that was one thing I wanted to bring up because uh, if you go back and rewatch the Johnny Mnemonic movie, uh, you know, but don't, yeah, please I mean, don't. don't. But but uh, you know the Johnny brags that his state of the art neural implants can hold up to eighty gigs of data, and I, I mean you know these days that just seems you know like eighty gigs. So what? And so I mean I get, I think that's another issue for writers is you know it, it, the the sort of liability of writing about the near future and about how trends with computing and stuff are going to go is is that your stories can just become outdated so quickly i think didn't neuromancer have the same problem i think case at the beginning of the story is trying to fence two megabytes of hot ram <laughs> and uh this is like a big thing it's like his lifeline i don't know how you handle that i think that's very tricky i think um especially today with moore's law still pretty much in effect it's got to be very very hard to pull off a prediction like that even five years in the future because we could be on i don't know quantum optical chips or something like that. Mm -hmm. I just made that up. That's not a <laughs> Don't call me on that. Um, Star yeah, Trek, I, I think, took the, the right route by just making up their own unit. Well, and, and I mean, it's, it's really frustrating being a, a writer because, you know, I mean, 30 years ago, you could write about somebody calling someone on the telephone and not worry that the telephone was going to be a passe, ter <laughs> passe terminology by the time the story came out. And, and these days, you know, like if you're like, okay, they need to send a message to somebody. Okay, well, they would use Facebook. Okay, but I don't even know if Facebook is going to be around by the time this is still going to be around. Mm -hmm. but by the time the story comes out, you know, maybe it will have gone the way of MySpace, et cetera. Everyone will be on something new. It's it's so frustrating. I mean, and that's just for, you know, that's for, for writing about the present, let alone 100 years from now. And I think that problem is particularly acute with Gibson because, especially in his more recent work, he's very, very brand conscious. He likes to give details about where mm -hmm. something was manufactured, what country it's from. Uh, even pattern recognition was entirely about brands. But then again, Gibson doesn't really write science fiction anymore. He doesn't have to. So he's sort of overcome that problem, or at least retreated from it. Yeah, it seems like a lot of science fiction writers have done, you know, are writing more and more about the present or, or the far future. I mean, it seems like, you know, you can either go, you know, that this presents such a problem that you can either go two ways, two ways with it. And one is to just basically write about the present and the present is changing so fast that for most of your readers, everything you write about is going to seem like science fiction because, you know, they haven't heard about it yet, even though it already actually exists. Or you can write about, you know, teleportation and faster than light ships and, and stuff, you know, that, you know, are probably never going to exist, but certainly aren't going to exist next year. Uh, and so you don't have to worry uh -huh. about them becoming outdated by the time the story comes out. I mean, like, you know, like my, my latest story in John, John's anthology, you know, it's like a guy who like time travels back from the future with his invincible suit of power armor. Like, I don't have to worry about that story, you know, that that's going to actually happen, you know, in the next five years or something. I mean, and it's a great story. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, but so I, I sort of struggle with that as, you know, should I only write stories about things that are not that plausible, but that, you know, but one of the things that's valuable about science fiction is that it deals with stuff that's plausible and predicts things that could actually happen. But then, 
there's those, those frustrations of dealing with that. Well, I mean, I think you just you have to you have to come to terms with the fact that, you know, if you're going to take a shot and write something that is, uh, you know, trying to be very contemporary, very current, um, you know, uh, you know, there is a chance that it might get dated. And, and uh, I mean, the chances of, of it being dated by the time it's published are, are fairly low. But I mean, the thing is, it just might not last. And uh, and, you know, maybe you'll look back on that story and you'll be like, oh, uh, you know, I didn't do so great on that one or it looks really silly now or whatever. And, and you know, maybe that's something to, to be concerned about if um, if that if that sort of thing would bother you. But I mean, you know, hey, the best the best writers in our field, they've written some they've written some clunkers uh, or at least they look like clunkers now in retrospect. I don't know how they looked when they first published them, but, you know, um, it happens to everybody. So, I mean, I think I think the worst thing you can do is. Um, sort of retreat from that challenge and, and never try any of that because you're worried about a story uh, not having a staying power, you know? Um, Cause you know, not everything is going to, no matter what you do. So yeah. I mean, I just think you, uh, you know, if you have an idea to, to, to write something like that, you should always try to exploit it. I mean, if, if you think you have a good take on it and because that's the type of stuff that if you do it right, it really can, it really can, you know, make an impact. Well, I mean, that kind of makes me think of this other point I wanted to bring up where, you know, William Gibson actually said that when he wrote Neuromancer, he didn't really know anything about computers. And that he said that actually someone who knew more about computers wouldn't have been able to write that book because they would have sensibly assumed that a lot of the stuff was impossible. Even stuff that turned out mm -hmm. not to be impossible, that was just, you know, beyond what anyone could have reasonably extrapolated from existing technological, you know, existing technical knowledge. Um, and I think I thought that was a really interesting thing is, you know, one of the uh, assumptions a lot of times with hard science fiction is that you shouldn't write about a particular technology unless you can provide some plausible explanation for mm -hmm. how it might work. But most, you know, most new technologies, most revolutionary technologies, no one could have provided a plausible explanation for how they might work until they actually mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. get invented, you know. And so... Um, uh, I mean, I don't know. There, uh, I was recently watching um, Brian Greene's Fabric of the Cosmos documentary where he's talking about, you know, how they're doing this quantum teleportation things now. And certainly I think, you know, like 20 years ago, anyone would have said teleportation is completely ridiculous from a scientific perspective. But, you know, that didn't stop people who knew nothing about the subject from writing about it. And mm -hmm. things like Star Trek made it so, made the idea so commonplace that now people have actually started figuring out you know, some, some theoretical ways that maybe you could do something along those lines. Um, so is it really, so what is, what is really the utility of, of limiting people's speculations on the basis of our current and almost certainly incomplete ideas of what's technically possible? I think that Gibson is absolutely right that not knowing too much about a field can be, can be liberating and can make it easier to write about it. And I think part of why that worked so well for cyberpunk is, again, because I don't think cyberpunk is about the technology as much as about how people relate with the technology. I have a friend who reads a lot of science fiction, and he was he's trained in computers, and he finds cyberpunk very difficult to read because he's aware on this intuitive level that a lot of the things it depicts are totally impossible. Not merely difficult, but um, certain mathematical facts of computation. Uh, render them, they would never happen. What I think he misses is that cyberpunk, it doesn't really matter how the technology works. It's how the people handle it um, and what uh, changes it inflicts on society. And I think a lot of, I think hard science fiction too can benefit from that approach where you look not at how a technology works, 
but at how people handle it. Okay, you know, so I mean, for preparation for the interview, you know, I read Gibson's book, you know, Distrust That Particular Flavor, and he was saying that the question that he's asked most often uh, in interviews is, will we have microchips in our heads, like in uh, Johnny Mnemonic? And he says he doesn't think so. Uh, he says that, you know, he thinks that genetic engineering will make the whole idea of brain microchips seem clunky and primitive and that, you know, super brains combined with, you know, just handheld devices and things is, is just uh, everything you could ever, ever need. And I just, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I buy that. I think we're going to have microchips in our heads. You mean like, a, like, you know, like in Johnny Mnemonic where you're like, you're, you know, you're using it for extra storage and whatnot? Oh, I don't know about that. I mean, in terms of like, you know, that you'll have like, you know, you'll be connected to the internet in your head and you can have like drop down menus oh, mm -hmm. in your field of vision and, you know, control your car and your house and everything. Yeah, yeah. Your... I think that brain microchips have a good chance of turning out to be cyberpunks flying cars. Um, <laughs> if only because biology is so challenging and the interface between biology and technology seems like it would be so tremendously difficult. We don't really understand the brain yet. It's probably going to be a while before we do. You might be able to brute force something in there. I, I could be wrong. Neuroplasticity is a, a hot topic. And if you could train a chunk of the brain to input and output with a piece of technology, maybe you could do something. But I just think there are so many ways that technology could go wrong the interface, um, and just be inconvenient and irritating rather than something useful. So I'm going to give a brave maybe on that well, one. Well, I mean, like I've read that I've read things where they'll, they'll put things in people's brains and uh, it allows like blind people to see patterns of color, or patterns of lights and stuff. And it seems like if that's possible, that a heck of a lot of other things are possible uh, extrapolating from that. And I mean, you're right. it may be, yeah, it may be sort of like, there may be problems with it, but you just look at like, like some of the gross piercings people get and stuff like that. And it doesn't even give them an internet hookup. You know, it's just like, I don't actually know why they do it. But I mean, if, you know, somebody's going to, it seems like somebody's going to do it, you know. And how long would it be once we had the microchips in our brains before somebody started, uh, started, you know programming viruses for those and then how 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 shitty would that be to get a virus in your brain i mean you know a computer virus bad enough you can get actual viruses in there i'd completely spaced about the um the implants to restore people's sensation and i know that uh they've experimented with implanting chips in monkeys that let them control robotic arms and the monkeys get used to this very very fast yeah i mean it seems like that would probably be more likely to come along first before like any huge advances in genetic engineering. I mean, especially with given um, sort of the attitudes people have or, or uh, many people have about uh, genetic engineering and thinking it's evil and whatever. So uh, yeah, I would think that um, it would be a much, it would be a path of least resistance that get us to, you know, microchips in the brain before we had uh, actual sort of large scale genetic engineering things. Uh. You know, I, I still remember actually some, you know, uh, some friends of my parents told me about, uh, in Neuromancer, um, when it was new about the, the, how there was this character, you know, the, the Dixie flatline character who he died, but he had, uh, you know, his brain patterns are stored on this, on this ROM. And so he's like still alive sort of inside a computer and just like, what a crazy, awesome idea that was. And it was funny. Cause I was just thinking back on that just now and thinking like, wow, that's such a commonplace idea now, you know, that, yeah. that I can still remember how much that thrilled me the first 
the first time I heard it, but it was kind of making me think that, you know, the internet does kind of offer this sort of immortality, uh, even just now. I mean, obviously it doesn't preserve your consciousness or anything. I mean, I guess this is something that William Gibson talks about in his book is that we have, you know, that for the first time in history, we can still sort of see the faces and hear the voices of, of people who have died and just sort of what kind of effect does that have on our society? It's, it's kind of, you know, a couple of years ago, you know, I, I got Roger Zelazny's, you know, Chronicles of Amber, which is one of my favorite series. Uh, and I had it on my iPod and it's read by him, you know, and so I often, I would just be walking around at night you know, listening to, listening to that and just think sometimes, you know, this is a guy who died, you know, 20 years, almost 20 years ago, but in a way he's like t talking to me, telling me a story. And that's really amazing. And, you know, makes you think like sometimes, uh, you know, some, sometime after we're all dead, someone might be listening to what we're recording right now, you know, and we'll be sharing our wisdom, you know, from, from beyond the grave. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, well, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that people are going to be listening to Geek Guys in 100 <laughs> years still, yeah. A couple weeks ago, I heard that someone in my hometown had died. A young man, apparently. He disappeared while he was hiking, uh, died of exposure. And I went to his Facebook page, and uh, I'd seen friends and acquaintances of his on my, my feed. My hometown's very small, sort of saying, I can't believe he's dead. You know, this is tragic. But oh, I went to his profile, and no one had posted there. The last thing uh, there was was a comment by him from a few days ago about something completely unrelated to hiking, fortunately. I know there's sometimes this tradition of, of posting, like, rest in peace on, on dead people's Facebook pages as a memorial, but it was as if no one wanted to post anything there because mm -hmm. the page hadn't died yet. Well, there was still no acknowledgement of his death there. Have you have you seen this this thing now where you can record a message on you know like a record a mm -hmm. message and it'll appear on your Facebook profile after you've died? I don't know if you've seen that. Like you you like uh, designate a couple friend like reliable people and then once you've died they'll like you know activate it and then like whatever message you left will like appear on your Facebook profile. I'm certain that within a few months I will be uh, laughing at some blog of collected dead messages that were let out <laughs> early by. Children, mm -hmm. friends, or girlfriends, or whatever. Yeah, but as for as for uh, living on, um, you know, forever through the internet or whatever. I mean, you know, obviously there's the, you know, the ways in which you can kind of do that now, like because you know uh, all these web pages will stay up forever, and there's things like Facebook and whatnot. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, we we talked about this before, and like uh, on on one of our other episodes, where the sort of idea of transferring a consciousness into a computer and whatnot, and um, yeah, so in episode 19, um, we actually had a long discussion about uh, consciousness transfer and, and the feasibility or, or lack thereof of, of, of that technology. Um, and so, you know, if you're interested in that topic, I would recommend uh, going to listen uh, to that one. But uh, uh, yeah, so you just go to geekskyshow.com and then, you, you know, find episode 19 and you can listen to the episode. All right. So I think we're going to wrap things up there. So, Seth, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. And also big thanks to William Gibson for joining us on the show. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode and want to see more, please head on over to Wired.com and add a comment to the post for this episode. And again, you can find that by going to our website at geeksguideshow.com and clicking on the link for episode 53. You can also support the show by giving us a review or rating on iTunes. We're currently at 116 ratings, and those really do make a big difference in our ability to reach new listeners. And of course, you can also help us out by telling your friends about us and posting about us on Facebook, Twitter, and other social media sites.
All right, so thanks to everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate 9 Entertainment. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.